You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Sharapova's return will go fairly well. Everybody gets humbled through setbacks in life, and this was a, this has been a really humbling setback. And so I think she might feel like a more endearing, endearing athlete. And I think everybody's always respected her work ethic. Of course, there's always going to be like, hmm, what, what did this 10 years of meldonium, what, how did it help her? But in the meantime, right. we're going to be fascinated by how she comes back, and I'm frankly looking forward to it. everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. This week's guest, Pamela Howard, Pam Shriver. She is a Hall of Famer. She is now a commentator. She's a lovely individual. And we're going to spend about half an hour talking about tennis, WTA, Maria Sharapova, getting some Baltimore sports. Nice conversation with uh, a longtime friend in the tennis space. One of the good people out there. Um, let's go our producer, Jamie Lasanti, flick the switch, and let's go to Southern California, where Pam Shriver awaits. Pam Shriver, I just told everyone your middle name. How goes? How are you? Good. How you doing? Oh, you know, it's the busiest time of the year. I appreciate your making time. You're doing more than tennis, I heard. You're doing, you doing? got some, not, got some golf that's, reps? That's, no, that's you, not correct. We need to get you some golf reps. Well, I don't think ESPN has any, many or any. Um, anymore, but um, the I think at this point, I think at this point, with what I have on my plate, kid-wise, it's like I have just the perfect amount of work. Oh, that's great. Yeah, your, your kids yeah. are. Uh, this isn't where we were going necessarily, but let's just riff. How, how old okay. are the kids? I know the answer to this. I think how old? Twelve, are the... eleven, twelve, eleven, and eleven. Wow. Those are uh, those are starting to become big numbers. I know, I know, and one's applying out to another school, which has made the fall, that that's time-consuming right there. Just, you know, when you're in the independent school track and you're trying to stay private, um, it's just, it's a big process to manage. 
I was thinking of you last night. We had our sports person of the year, our big uh, extravaganza. Yeah, I saw a lot online about it. Oh, good. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, so, so LeBron wins, but there's one table, and I look over, and it's Michael Phelps talking to Ray Lewis. Oh and my God! And I'm thinking you're missing, and like we would have Baltimore. Had... Exactly. It's like a that would be a Baltimore dream conversation to be in. That's a Balmer with uh with you and Kevin Flank. We would have had um we would have had a foursome. <laughs> um, bring back Jim McKay from uh you know from heaven. I did not know. Is that right? Yeah, Jim McKay's Baltimore. I did not know that. You know Frank DeFord is too. I he's he that's who I wrote my book with. H L Mankin. Oh jeez. God, you're uh, we're we're on quasi live air, and you're embarrassing me. I did not know that. Um, Frank is a lovely man. So uh, let's talk a little tennis, then we can just talk about whatever. We can talk about the Ravens, kind of kind of deceptively good this year. But let's let's talk tennis oh. first. Well, coming off right. last night, it's a little a little rough with uh, the loss to the Patriots. That was because they made a they did a great job of getting back in the game, and then you know the touchdown. To put it what thirty twenty was just heartbreaking when it comes down to one game because there's certain teams you just hate whether it's you know it's like Pittsburgh or the Patriots take your pick that's, that's I was who thought, I yeah, choose. Yeah, I was thought of Baltimore more of a yeah right. I was thought more of a no, Baltimore Pittsburgh no. thing. Yeah, Pittsburgh, and then I'd say the last five six years the Patriots have gone right up there. But anyway, no, it's a fun. It's another fun year. Um, and also, my son, the last two years, has been in a fantasy league, and um, he's sitting on top of the table of his league there. So we, wow. we enjoy following the NFL. Tell him uh, Julio Jones is going to get healthy again. So, uh, all right, let's talk tennis. Enough of this crazy football. Um, we'll start general, then we'll go specific. How's that? Okay. Where do, you, where do you think tennis is right now? As macro as you can get, as big pictures as you can get, where... where People come up to you and they say, where is tennis right now? What do you say? I think it's a pretty big transition state. I think, um, you know, in the men's game and the women's game, you've got a couple of uh, all-time greats that are, uh, however long this wrap-up period is going to last for Serena and Federer, they're, they're they're in their last phase. And whenever you have two figures and on both sides of the aisle that are uh, in their last phase, right. it's it's a time of transition. And, you know, there's some other great ones that are maybe transitioning as well. Um, you know, Venus, obviously, the Williams era right. will eventually come to a close as far as the on-court um, play. So that's been an extraordinary um, – It'll next year it'll be 20 years since Venus got to the finals of the U.S. Open. So it's been an extraordinary 20 years by those pair of sisters on the women's side. And then in the men's side, the last 15 years, really led by Federer first, then Nadal, Djokovic, now Murray. Right. It's been extraordinary 15 years on the men's side. Um, but it, but I, I feel like – it is in a time of transition, and that can pose some difficult times. Kerber, higher ranked than Serena. Murray, higher ranked than Djokovic. What's the bigger surprise to you? Kerber you being ranked higher than Serena. Um, I feel that given Andy Murray's work ethic, his foot speed, that he leaves no stone unturned ever throughout his entire career. I think at some point he was going to have his turn at number one, actually. 
maybe the quickness that the Djokovic run after he won Paris and the sort of the quickness of his six months um, at a more mortal level, opening the window for uh, Murray to have a great five months and take it over. Maybe, maybe the, how quickly it happened was somewhat of a surprise, but that it did happen is a, not that much of a surprise. But if you told me a year ago, sitting at my desk right now, talking to you, that Angelique Kerber would be year-end number one in 2016, I would have said, <laughs> not a chance. But if, if you'd asked me that at the end of the Australian Open, right. it's a totally different conversation. Because you Isn't that amazing? See, it's one event, yeah. and like, you're totally right. You could see what the four months hiatus for Serena had done to her sharpness. Right. You know, the loss to Vinci, the four months off to recover. Okay, I get it. I mean, I, no, I don't get it because I never got to within two matches of winning a calendar year Grand Slam. But I get at 33, 34 years of age, she felt she needed many months off. But that really hurt Serena coming out of the gates in 2016. And who ended up doing the best off-season homework but Kerber? And it showed up right away at Melbourne, and she never. It turned out she never really looked back, except for the French Open. I, I would, uh, yeah, and you and you had, you know, Azarenka has a blazing start to the year. Yeah. Great, great ninety days, and then, um, and she obviously re- retreats for one reason, and Maria's not in the picture for another, and Serena only plays seven tournaments, and presto, Angie Kerber's your MVP, huh? Yeah, definitely the MVP, but with some amazing other results in there. I thought some outstanding tennis, actually, on the women's side this year. Some matches that stood out for me. I thought the for the for a straight set final, I thought the Wimbledon final was tremendous. I thought the build-up, the fact that it was a rematch of the Australian between Kerber and Williams, you know, um, you know, it had only been a couple of majors that Serena had lost in a row, what, three in a row or whatever it was, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, the French. The French but, right. you know, Serena would have felt great pressure in that final. And then I thought it was I thought it was wonderful. I thought the U.S. Open final from the courtside position between two, you know, players in different parts of their career, Kerber and Pliskova, I thought it had so much in it, that match. I loved it. I thought the... Halep quarterfinal that Serena figured out somehow how to win. I thought that match was off the charts. Um, So, I don't know. I was thoroughly entertained by women's tennis in a surprising way in 2016. And obviously you mentioned some things that we could not have imagined at the start, that Sharapova would be serving a drug suspension and Azarenka would be on maternity leave. Um, I would pose this to you. Pamela H. Shriver, that uh, as far as Grand Slam finals go, women's tennis, best year ever. I thought all, all I four th- of those I, matches, terrific. Yes. I thought for the, for I don't know if best ever, but best in a, a long, long time. You know, I think about, you know, 2017 will be 39 years in January since I played my first match on the women's tour. And so when I think about that, I'm like, half of me is like, are you kidding me? There's just no way I've I've been around for that many great players and that many major seasons, either as a player, as a commentator. But you're right. When you think back to all the major finals last year, 
they were impactful and memorable in their own way. And you, you're right. You can't say that about a lot of the previous years in women's finals in the recent history. They, they, there have not been that many that have stood out. I'm going to give you four names. You tell me how many more majors you're predicting each of them wins. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Better. Uh, one. You think he's got one more in him? That's optimi- I'm giving the optimistic view. All right. Uh, Nadal? One. M- might it be on clay? Probably. Serena? Two. You think he's got two more? I think she has two more. Both in 2017? No, not necessarily. Ooh. She's going to play till she's... Uh, all right. Um, and what, what about Maria? I think Maria optimistically has one more. Let's Probably a you. French. Probably a French, not this year, the year after. Boy. Um, careers change, don't they? That's, that's, you, you would not have said uh, 10 years ago that, you know, at this stage in the game, Maria would be winning her third French if she was going to win one more major. How do you think, uh, how do you think her return is going to go? I think her return, Sharapova's return, will go fairly well. Um, I think she's extremely well-respected um, in a lot of corners, and I think there, this will be a very thoughtful return, how it will be um, rolled out. Right. And um, I, I, I did not particularly enjoy like the first 24 hours of the reduced suspension. I thought... I don't know. It didn't feel like it was guided well, her messaging. Um, and I think when she returns, it will be much better. Um, and I think she'll. everybody gets humbled through setbacks in life. And this, was a, this has been a really humbling setback. And so I think she might feel like a more endearing, endearing um, athlete. Um, and I think everybody's always respected her work ethic. And her professionalism, um, of course, there's always going to be like, hmm, what, what did this? What did this ten years of Meldonium? What? How did it help her? But in the meantime, right. we're going to be fascinated by how she comes back, and I'm frankly looking forward to it. I, I will. Uh, can I give you my prediction and ha- ask you to assess it? Yes. They usually these these comebacks they they tend to be sort of pleasant and lukewarm, right? You you and I don't mean just from anti-doping, but from injury comeback or, or from maternity and you get to a quarterfinal and you sort of ease your way back in. I'm thinking this is one pole or the other. Either she's thinking I've been pissed off for 18 months and I'm sick of this and I know what people are saying about me and I've got X number of years left to play and I'm coming for trophies or else she's just a, a damaged player and this, this goes nowhere. I, I don't see this being one of these middling comebacks where you make some quarterfinals and you finish number nine in the rankings and I'm easing back. I, th- I think this goes yeah, kind of like when you, you're sort of describing like Hingis's comeback after a couple of years. Her first retirement was sort of she got to an Australian Open final. She got back into the top ten, but there was nothing sensational. The, to me, the two most sensational immediate comebacks or uh, fairly immediate would have been Kim Kleister's after the retirement and the first child. You know, she right. went on to Trophies, do what right. she did. And then 
I, I actually feel that Celis, when you go back to what Celis went through in two and a half years, she comes back. She, she, I think she got the finals of Canada or won Canada and, and should have, could have beaten Groff in the finals of the U.S. Open and then won the Australian Open in 96, her last major. I mean, that was an extraordinary um, comeback after a long, a long absence. I feel like in women's tennis, there have been enough. If Sharapova were to study some of the long um, layoffs for whatever reason, either retirements, maternity leaves, in this case a doping suspension, I think there's enough inspiration in some of the qualities of the comebacks that it should help her. Um, we, if we, if we, we don't get gender specific, I would say Del Potro last year oh. beating. I mean that just. But what he did from the Olympics to the end of the year in Davis Cup, yep, that's a comeback for you. Yes, that was fantastic, and um, he's such a likable figure on on both the, in the women's locker room, the men's locker room worldwide. He's you know when he won his U.S. Open in '09, he did it in such a humbling, magnificent way, beating Federer over five sets. He's just likable, um, and everybody felt. Sympathy, empathy, you know, just for all. Every time he would go on Facebook and write his, you know, his latest right, chapter right, of right. his wrist right. setback, it's like we were all like, "No, not again." So, what it, it was, it was one of the two or three best stories of the year. I mean, I, I still, I still, Kerber and and Murray, whoever finishes year in number one, especially in the way they did it, that's one and two. But I'd say Del Potro's three. I'll tell you something funny too. They last night, I don't know if you saw that uh, Juan Monaco pulled out of. The Australian Open, and so the the tweet came out as Argentina's. Uh, you know, you're glancing at this, and it's on your tweet deck, and it said, "I saw Argentina Juan pull out wrist injury." Oh. You say, "Oh no!" Say, oh, poor I. Oh, God, God bless Juan Monaco. I feel bad for him, but uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, so let me let me ask you this. You, you mentioned Sharapova, and I I always feel like one of the things about tennis that's tricky from a commentary position, also from from to, I think to a lesser extent, but also from a writing position, is that it is a small world. We see each other not just at the venue, but at the restaurants and in the hotel lobbies and in the courtesy cars. It's a dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. How do you do with criticizing the players that you're you're watching and trying to give honest commentary? I mean, some I feel like some commentators just say the heck with this. I'm just calm as I see him, and if I get screamed at, so be it. But I think. That sometimes can be short-sighted, and I think other peoples are much more reluctant and never say anything discouraging, and I think that can be short-sighted. How do you sort of balance the fact that you're running into the people that you're sometimes commentating on disfavorably? Well, a couple of things that make it easy -er, easier. It's never easy. Is One is I'm not that close to anybody on the tour anymore. Uh, and uh, and the other thing that makes it easy is that I'm totally independent. I'm not, I, 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 don't ha- I don't have an agent. I don't have an agent, say, that represents other players. I don't earn income from anybody else but ESPN. I am really just there professionally to give my opinion as to what I see on the tennis court. And so my number one interest is to present the viewer with my authentic, honest view of what's happening. And that's been a course of an education of a lifetime in tennis at all different levels, including now with my boy who's in the 12 and unders and a 11 year old who enjoy, enjoys playing. So sort of mixing it up a little bit with as a junior tennis mom. So I feel like I bring 
a lot of different perspectives. And sure, sometimes I'm, I'm an outgoing, outspoken person. Sometimes I can say, hmm, that comment, maybe I could have shaped that comment a little bit differently so it didn't come out quite so bluntly or harshly. But in the end, you know, I'm kind of focused on the match, almost like I'm playing the match, and I say it as I see it. And I know I, I know I have upset uh, players, but to be honest, they're not coming over to my house for dinner. They're not. I'm not looking for them to pick up my next dinner. So in the end, <laughs> you've got your really, It really doesn't matter. Good for you. Um, if only if, no. I mean, it's 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 tricky though, isn't it? I mean, it's it's not like you're parachuting in for an NFL game. I mean, these are these are people you run into in the line to buy a sandwich, and sometimes there's some awkward exchanges and if it's not with the player it's with the agent or a parent I oh know. sure no listen some of the most awkward things have been uh, some of the more difficult ones are the you know like or if you have a very controlling if, if a player has a controlling agent is trying to control every message right it really it's like it can't be done it can't be done it's like <laughs> they have to accept there's there's words that come out of commentators mouths that are supposed to be independent and free thinking and they can't they can't shape it or control it but you, know, you are the not the part, publicist pam shriver what you are not the publicist you know there are right. people on payroll whose job it is to uh to to boost image and, and tell a tidy story that's that's not your, you know um i i just think it's something that uh it it comes up frequently and, and good for you for having uh for having that gumption um yeah, i don't know if you were I, I wish I had the story in front of me because I would quote it. But when Djokovic parted with Becker, I think they both talked about the narcissism required to be a pro tennis player. So there's necessarily it's like an occupational requirement that you're narcissistic. That that struck me, and I don't know if that's always. I mean, obviously it's an individual sport, and you don't have to worry about the quarterback passing to you and the point guard distributing the ball. I mean, it's it stands to reason. In individual sport, you need to be more self-centered. But did did you feel narcissism was um, something that had either crept in or something you had to confront when when you played? So how would you give me a simple? What's your definition of what? I, I wish I had this in front of me. And it's, it's my uh, it's it's. I mean, there's you know there's a there's a DSM definition, but I, I it's my sloppiness. I don't have this in front of me. But basically, it's just sort of I had to be completely singularly focused on myself. Yeah. And. That strikes me as something that might be hard to turn off once you stop playing. That strikes me as something that's hard to stop. I mean, did is that something that you felt creep into your life and your personality? Um, I would say probably I could have done with a dose or two more of narcissism as far as my singles career went. I think I I pursued certain things during my career, whether it was broadcasting for the first time in the early 80s when CBS didn't have anybody yet, or ESPN when I was still playing in 1990. I went to state dinners back in the Reagan era because I was like, oh my God, if I'm invited to a state dinner, I definitely want to go. Um, I, I enjoyed a lot of opportunities that were open to me as a top tennis player. Um, but I think if I had that single-minded focus, I perhaps would have said no a lot more and I think that you could look at it either way it was a, it was on one hand I think a good move I think it made from a, a smoother transition for me after my career do am I, I I think it's still difficult to make any kind of transition from playing professional tennis and where your singles has been a big part of your focus and then you know 
on to the next bit where literally in life you need empathy and you need to have attunement with other people, especially your family and loved ones, if you're going to be successful in relationships. And I think most of us finish our tennis career not with the kind of tools you need. You, you, you need to be willing to develop those tools soon after you retire or or get them a lot better or else I think you do set yourself up for not being successful in relationships. And you develop them. I'm guessing there are places more conducive to development than uh, than TV. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, in the case for me, I've had some really difficult losses in my life um, right. that was close to when I was retiring. I lost my only older sibling from a six-year cancer battle in 97, the same year I played my last match. Uh, two years later, I lost my first husband. Um, I, you know, when you, when you, then I started to have kids like five years later. Um, so all these things are humongous, life-changing experiences that forces you to feel and think a lot differently than when you're in the, in the bubble of the tennis world. So in my situation, I think it was a combination of me being curious while I was playing, but also having some tremendously challenging big-time life events occur that I needed to figure out how to deal with. Now you're a tennis mom. <laughs> hey, we won our, we won our second annual, um, if I'm allowed to say the sponsor, the Big Five Midwinter Classic in El Segundo. George and I... <laughs> George and I won the I mother. That's my wallet there. Oh, oh, we. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, with we. You. No, I, I was going to say. Yeah, I was cringing. The, the we actually does involve you. You actually played. It's not the royal yeah, we. It's so good. It, here, it's interesting. It was a historic match for me because, um, well, one we defend. I hadn't defended a title in probably twenty years, twenty-five years. <laughs> um, and last the last year when I played, I shredded my shoulder again. I served. I tried to serve over overhand and hit overheads, and we came from a set and four-one down. This time I went into it knowing I no longer have a serve that's an over, over, overhand serve. I served every ball underarm. And that was, that's been a, that's like almost a huge bit of acceptance for me to realize after all these years of serving, two surgeries, another one I could have had a year ago, but I decided just to get it rehab it. Just be an acceptance that I no longer can serve the way a traditional tennis player can serve. And you know what? That was even just such a relief to be able to go out there, still try to serve underarm, get to net as quick as I can, make first volley, and we ended up, you know, we ended up playing well and winning, winning. So it was fun. Winning's always better than losing, and to share it with your son was, I, I loved. It was we had a blast. Oh, that's great. But I got to ask you, like, like Chang at the French Open against Lendl under, like, well, that was, like, well, like hit a ground off, stroke out of your he, hand. He, yeah, yeah. Just you know, you just, and one of the best serves I hit the the the. The son, the other son was, I think, 19 years of age and is looking at, you know, what college he's going to go to to play tennis. He was a lot better than anybody else on the court. So that his the other mom wasn't as experienced, wasn't too experienced. She was not very, she'd probably be like a 2.5 to 3.0. So guess who we were hitting the ball to? But one of my best serves of the match was like this slice, low slice side spin that came up about four inches that he hit halfway up the net that was like a big miss for him to have. <laughs> anyway, so even an underarm serve, you can learn how to hit the corners, put spin on it, 
change the pace. It's just that it comes about, for me, about six feet lower. <laughs> you, you, no, more than that, like eight feet lower. There's, there's a lot it, of symbolism packed into that. Yeah, there was. There was. Can I ask you a question that I don't know the answer to? I, I was associate. How did you end up in L.A.? How come I what? How, you, how did you end up in L.A.? You, you ended up oh, in L.A. Well, with your first I, husband? I, yeah, that's right. Um, just my late husband, there. was. Uh, he retired from Disney with health issues when we started a date. He took early retirement. And um, he lived, his, his base was uh, Los Angeles after he, had, he was an East Coast guy, but he ended up out here for business reasons. And you never wanted to uh, get a nice place in Glen Burnie with horses in the back? You never <laughs> want to go back to Maryland? Glendon. I, if I wanted there horses, I'd be near my mom in Glendon or out uh, towards the Pennsylvania line. But, no, you know what? The weather in L.A., it's, it's a rough day today. It's about 65 and half overcast, and we do have some rain, thankfully, coming in later in the week. But I've become this person. I enjoy playing golf and tennis all year round outdoors. It not facing brutal winters is just fine with me right now. I told you what Al Michael said. The the three best athletes that he thought could uh could have a chance to play golf on a different on a real on a real tour were you, Marty Fish and Pete Sampras. Well, he sees a lot of Marty Fish and Pete Sampras at uh, Bel Air Country Club. He hasn't seen me that much, but he probably, because my club, Brentwood Country Club, plays in the same league, the women's, he doesn't play, obviously, for the women's team, but we play Bel Air, so he's probably gotten wind, or maybe I bragged, I'm 4 and out. When I play a club championship, I've never lost one. You're so, serv- but, not serving yeah. underhand, either. Uh, um, no, no. <laughs> I got, uh, all right, I, I, uh, last question. I don't think of you as a, as a female analyst, so I don't want. I'm just you're a tennis analyst, so don't limit this to uh, to women. Okay. Three bold predictions for tennis in 2017. Go. Uh, bold predictions. Um, somebody will keep the same coach all year long. That's crazy. Uh, it's like the NFL. That's Everyone's. Uh, do you remember when George That's Steinbrenner a- was considered rash for changing coaches after a losing season? <laughs> The tour that's of Steinbretters. Bo- All right, that's bold. That's really that's bold. That's bold. Um, WTA will be um, continuing a, a, a nice recovery from a challenging few years, and, and it will be led by uh, Sharapova in the second half of the year. Azarenka will both make good comebacks. Nice. All right. And And then my third one will be that... Andy Murray will finish year in number one two years in a row. Ooh, well, I like, so uh, so I won't make that. Th- so this this is really the last question. So so you think this Djokovic thing's serious business that this uh, the blooms off the rose as others have implied. This isn't well, just six months of mental fatigue and then it's back to winning three majors a year. Um, I think this is a bigger blip than that. I think. Um, I think he's going to have a hard time getting back to the same level he showed, uh, what, two years apart. Um, well, it was 11 and then... 11 and 15 were these... 11 and 15, so they were four years apart, but he did a lot of great stuff in between those phenomenal years. But um, I think I think he's going to struggle a little bit. I think he's lost that, that special aura that when you, when you know that somebody doesn't quite have the, 
the swagger that intimidates on the other side of the net, it becomes a lot harder. So I also think no matter what people say, I know his forehand and his serve held up incredibly well over those years that he was either dominating or at close to, the, you know, dominating. But I still say that, that that forehand and the serve can still be is two Achilles heels. And I think that he's going to struggle with both those shots on and off throughout next year. That's what I love about tennis. Six months ago, this guy was untouchable, and we thought he was going to 50-50 shot to win the Grand Slam, and now here we are, and he's not going to finish number one this year, <laughs> and, and you're saying you won't next year. Um, all right, this is great. I will uh, Next time I see you, it'll probably be like 2 in the morning in a hotel lobby uh, in search of Ambien. But, oh, well, um, that'll be you, not me. No? <laughs> well, you've done that drill. You, you've... Uh, you you can handle the travel better than I can. Um, all right, this was great. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad. Uh, Thank I'm, you. I'm glad you got approval to do this. Happy holidays, and uh, see you in Melbourne. You bet. And be here before you know it. Jeez. No kidding. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, my friend. Take care. All right. That does it for this week. That is Pam Shriver. She's always fun to listen to on ESPN, and you can see why. Full of opinions and doesn't shy from dispensing. We thank her for joining us. I'm John Wertheim. Our producer is Jamie Lasanti. Keep the suggestions coming. Someone had suggested Pam Shriver. We heeded that suggestion, and it was gold, I tell you. Um, good conversation. We'll do some more, at least one more this year, and then we'll start in again in 2017. All right, talk to you in seven days, and have a good week. 